And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the floods surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. Well, last week we saw that Jonah wasn't the hero that these prophets' stories usually present. What we saw is that God is actually the only hero in this story. And the good news was that God didn't abandon the prophet Jonah who tried to abandon God. And yet, what we see this morning in this next section of the story is that sometimes we need to reach rock bottom to really see sense. In the face of death, Jonah prays and God saves. And at Jonah's rock bottom, he sees sense. Sort of. So I want to show you three movements sort of through this uh, part of the story here. That Jonah prays for what God has already prepared. That Jonah prays and God saves. And that there's an ironic revelation and a comic salvation. If you just turn there just to that last verse of chapter 1 and the first verse of chapter 2. We'll look at those together and see Jonah prays for what God had already prepared. If you like, the bullet points of this sort of section of the story here are that God appoints the fish. You see that in verse 17. At the start of that second chapter, Jonah prayed. And in verse 10, the Lord spoke to the fish and it delivers him. And this raises uh, problems for some commentators. Because some question the validity of this prayer, this psalm of Jonah's. Because firstly, the completeness of the story without it. That really, you could cut the prayer out and in a way, the story would lose nothing for it. You have the main bullet points that Jonah's swallowed by the giant fish, he prays, he's spat out by the fish, he's saved. 
But secondly, the supposed sort of lack of relation of everything that comes up in this prayer to the rest of the story. It doesn't seem to directly, obviously, explicitly come up later again through the rest of the narrative. And thirdly, the idea that was it really appropriate that Jonah is supposedly singing a song of thanksgiving in a moment of such misery? And we might add as well just the personality of Jonah so far. And to come, he is miserable. Could Jonah really write this song at this moment? And part of my understanding of this, against some of this scepticism, is based on something I call the sting theory. They'll play on words with string theory there. I thought one or two of you who are sort of into that kind of thing might appreciate that pun. Uh, it's a sting theory. And what it is is that People who are idiots can be capable of great creativity. Sting as a person is really deeply annoying. I think he's the most pretentious sort of person ever. You listen to him talk about anything, he's so irritating. But insane genius when it comes to music. Jonah is an insufferable person, but it doesn't mean he's incapable of great creativity. See, prophets in the Old Testament weren't like sort of market traders just, just bellowing out the same sort of thing again and again, little catchphrases and slogans. Old Testament prophets were songwriters. They were creatives. They were artistic with their language. And here's the thing. This psalm, this prayer, this song of Jonah's, it, it reeks of him. The self-centeredness, the narrow-mindedness that comes through a delusional pride at the end. See, a shallow reading of this psalm would say, it would take every word at face value and say, well, okay, well, then that, that must be true, and, well, that can't be Jonah who would say that. A better reading would see this as precisely being Jonah. Jonah who's scared out of his mind, who's drowning, who's now seeing more sense, but is still confused, is still self-righteous, is still arrogant and still self-centered as he always was. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish saying, I called out. And then we get this great psalm here. And then verses 1 to 10 here of chapter 2 will summarize for us the prayer of praise that Jonah gives. But verse 2 of chapter 2, if you flick there just very quickly, tells us that he prayed prior to this prayer. Jonah's prayed for salvation, and then we get his prayer of thanksgiving that's to come. But this has only come, and this is the then, after going overboard. Finally, Jonah prays to the God he says he fears, only when he's in danger. Does he call out to his God? And he realizes he no longer wants the thing he thought he wanted. He thought that he wanted to die quietly. But the grim reality of drowning shook some sense into him. But notice the order of events there. There's a strong case here that 
Verse 17 of chapter 1 really should just be verse 1 of chapter 2, that it flows into one another, that we're supposed to read those right next to each other. You're supposed to see God has prepared a fish. Jonah prays. God had prepared salvation. Then Jonah prayed. Not the other way around. The Lord appointed, or the word there in in Hebrews, prepared a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. And for many of the commentators, a lot of the sort of ink is spilt on talking about the fish or the whale. I will spend no time talking about it because I have no interest in wasting time in it. I believe in a God who created ex nihilo, that's out of nothing, so I don't have a problem with a fish swallowing a man. The Lord prepared a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. And here's the truth behind that, the significance of this. You don't have to leverage God into saving you. Put it another way. God's salvation does not wait until you ask for it or until you deserve it. That is good, good news for Jonah. And Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish. Jonah, much like a prisoner, if you've ever met and chatted with them or corresponded with them, the one thing they have... The one commodity that's on their side is time and not much else to do. It gives you time to think, to maybe think a bit clearly. And it does Jonah some good. Here's the good news just in that section there. God is so good. He has always already prepared your salvation before you get around to actually asking him. So this morning, if you need saving, if you need rescuing, you can call out to him knowing he's already made that before you. Jonah prays for what God has already prepared. But secondly, we see Jonah prays and God saves. You know, it's easy sometimes in life, isn't it, to not care about things that you don't care about. You could be very, very zen about problems that just aren't problems for you. Things that involve stuff being threatened that you don't have or you don't particularly value. This is a great scene in um, Brooklyn Nine-Nine. And uh, Terry, the sergeant, is trying to understand why one of the other officers is saying, look, the fridge is broken, this is a huge deal. He says, that doesn't seem like such a big deal. Until he realises his yoghurt has spoiled. And one of the things he's known for is, Terry loves yoghurt. And all of a sudden it becomes an issue. He's invested, because now it affects him. Before it didn't affect him, not bothered. Now it does. I'm invested. It matters to me. And here we find, in this story, what does motivate Jonah to action. Jonah didn't care that the sailors might die as collateral damage in his rebellion from God. They're pagan. They had it coming, I guess. Jonah never saw the pagan sailors as valuable as he thought he was. He wasn't emotionally invested. But now we see what 
does motivate him and what does move him? Himself. His comfort. His well-being. Now Jonah cares enough to pray. Now it affects him. I called out to the Lord, he says, out of my distress, and he answered me. And just hit pause, because the book, the whole story, began in a very similar way. Chapter 1, verse 2, for their evil, their disaster, their distress, is the word there. That's the whole city of Nineveh. That distress and disaster has come up before me. God has heard those cries, and he's responding. And now Jonah says, I called out to the Lord out of my distress. And he answered me. Jonah's benefiting from the same grace that God was wanting to show in Nineveh. Because God listens to any genuine prayer. No matter how badly you may have messed up. I called out. He answered. Out of the belly of shale I cried and you heard my voice. He says it in a different way. He's saying it at rock bottom, as low as I could possibly go. He prayed and God saved. One of the things we see in this story is Jonah's descent, how he goes down and down and down. Chapter 1, verse 3, he went down to Joppa. Verse 5, he went down into the inner part of the ship and was fast asleep. Jonah went down as the sailors hurled him into the sea. In this prayer, we hear that he went down to the very seabed. He goes down into the belly of the fish. And then finally, figuratively, he goes down to the belly of shale. He goes down to the point where he's as good as dead. No hope left. And yet here's the glorious truth. There are no places so low, so dark, that God is not present. We read of this elsewhere, Psalm 139 here, verse 7 and 8. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in shale, you are there. Even death cannot separate us from God's presence. And Jonah learns this the hard way. See, he thought he could escape God's presence. We heard that three times in chapter one. Because he believed that there's some places that God just isn't. Now he's in a situation where he'll have to realize God is everywhere, even the places he doesn't want to believe that that's true. And the reality for him is challenging. Because even the place that you tell yourself, no one sees, no one knows, he does. Sometimes we find this out the hard way. One of my favorite uh, political gaffes, I, I mean, there's few things more enjoyable in life than watching a politician sort of squirm, uh, is Gordon Brown thinking that sort of in the privacy of his sort of car, he could describe... Uh, one voter as being a very bigoted woman and get away with it. And of course, I forgot to check. His microphone was off. Everybody hears it. And then here's the moment of just 
absolute embarrassment as it's played back to him on the radio and he realises his mistake. He thought he was in a moment where he could speak candidly, where, where no one would know. It turned out not so. Jonah realises here there's nowhere you can escape God's presence. And on the one hand, that's challenging. But on the other, that's insanely good news. That nothing, no moment, no shame, no scandal is beyond God's redeeming too. He is there and he hears your cries in the midst of it. For you cast me into the deep, he says, verse 3. Yes and no. The storm was a sovereign act of God's correcting judgment. Oddly, actually, it's the sailors who pick that up. You have done what you've pleased, O Lord. But it was also entirely self-inflicted. This only happens because Jonah didn't do what he was told. God's plan A hasn't been to create this storm and for Jonah to be thrown down into it and to nearly drown. God's plan was, get up, go to Nineveh. He did not cast him into the deep. Jonah cast himself into the deep by his rebellion and his disobedience. Jonah still doesn't get it. You must see that in this prayer, this isn't Jonah's moment of redemption. That's the important thing. Thing to pick out about it. This isn't Jonah's moment of redemption. God saves him, but this is not his moment of clarity and redemption. He, he's still just as messed up in, in this moment. For you cast me into the deep, yes and no. But look, he paints this picture for us. The flood surrounded me, the waves and billows passed over me. There's this grim prospect of drowning here. He takes us to that place. Skip ahead a little bit to verses 5 and 6. He continues that Description for us here. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head. At the roots of the mountains I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. It's a desperate picture, isn't it? Seeing your life slipping away in front of your eyes. And now if we skip back just a little bit to verse 4, we see his mindset in that moment. He says, then I said, or actually the translation could be, then I thought. And I think that might be a little bit better. Then I thought, I'm driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. Jonah presumes that God has rejected him and wanted him dead. He says, you cast me into the deep and I'm driven away from your sight. Not so. That is not the story, is it? Jonah rejected God. This is the self-pitying, responsibility-shaking, history-revising of an unrepentant rebel. Jonah's experiencing, fancy word for it, is cognitive dissonance. He has beliefs that are conflicting with other beliefs. That he has. And he has beliefs that are in conflict with his behaviour. And yet, before you judge him, don't we all? Don't we all do that? It's 
wonderfully summed up by one man who encounters Jesus. And he says, I, I believe, help my unbelief. <laughs> what can I do? I, I, I do believe. And then there's a part of me that doesn't. <laughs> help me. Or you could put it another way. That Jonah is just thick as two short planks. He can't see and can't understand yet. That You can't ever be out of God's sight. Where would he drive you to to drive you away from his sight? How small of a God would that be? Yet I shall again look upon your holy temple, he says. You pushed me away, I guess, in essence. I'll get back to you. <laughs> Do you see the delusional pride and self-confidence? You pushed me away, but I'll get myself back. <laughs> Will you? Will you, Jonah? But for a great fish, would have drowned at the bottom of the seabed. You'll get yourself back, will you? But there's this hope. There's his hope to get him through. You know, everybody does this. We do this, don't we? That we, we have a sort of hope that we hold out before ourselves to help us get through something difficult, through an adversity, through a challenge, through something that we know might be, to some extent, uncomfortable or painful for a moment. When I want to sort of quit the gym, and it would be easier just to go down to Five Guys and get a burger or a, you know, a pack of muffins, the hope I hold out before me is, and you know, I, I know you'll say, well, you know, what, what's the difference anyway? Uh, but you know, I, I hold in my mind a picture of Arnold Schwarzenegger, and I think, no, I stay here that extra hour, I'm that bit close. I know you'll be kind and you'll say, yeah, but Tom, you're already there. And yeah, that's, that's really nice of you, thank you. It's lovely of you to say that. But that's the hope that's there, that you think, no, no, no. The short-term pain is worth it for getting this little bit closer to the goal at the end of it. We all do this. There's many people living their life hoping that their weekend, their holiday, their relationship, a job, increase in income, will get him through the day. Jonah's hope is that he will get to Jerusalem, not Nineveh. And I don't think this is metaphorical. I don't think that he's thinking of a spiritual temple in heaven. Again, that presumes that this is Jonah's moment of redemption. It's not. He, he's thinking of Jerusalem the physical city. I'll get there. He still doesn't get it. God didn't want him dead. He wanted Jonah in Nineveh. Like he told him to do from the start. And yet, he does give thanks. Look, yet you brought up my life from the pit. He recognizes he was a dead man. But God saved his life from despair. When my life was fainting away, verse 7 tells us, I remembered the Lord and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Jonah prays for salvation and gives thanks for salvation, but look what he doesn't do. He doesn't say sorry. And yet, we pray and God saves. Even people like Jonah. Even people like us. And then lastly, just want to look at this ironic revelation that Jonah has and this comic, salvation too. 
There is much more than meets the eye to this prayer of thanksgiving. It's not Jonah's full sort of moment of redemption here. And he's not fully learnt his lesson yet. It's a great uh, line in the movie Shrek, uh, where the ogre says, Ogres are like onions. We both have layers. And the characters in this story are layered. No one is purely good, purely bad. They all have mixed motives. They all have somewhat divided hearts. But look at what Jonah says. Those who pay regard, verse 8, this is keep hold of. Those who keep hold of vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. And the stories prove this to be true, hasn't it? All the gods that all the sailors called out to in desperation in that first chapter did not do anything to save them, nor could they. And yet, look at what Jonah's doing. Those. Jonah has nearly died because of his disobedience. He's nearly caused the death of a bunch of other people because of his disobedience. But Jonah is focused on how others are so stupid. Do you see that? Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. And that bit about idols is challenging, isn't it? Because it's one of those bits that's super easy to just sort of read over and dismiss because we imagine, like Jonah would have imagined, that that isn't us, that we don't do that. Martin Luther, writing on this, he's writing about the first commandment and he answers three really important questions that I think help us to see what is going on here and how we might do this and how Jonah might do this more than we or Jonah would imagine. He answers these three questions. What is a God? What is worship? And what is idol worship? He says this, what is a God? A God means that from which we are to expect all good and to which we're to take refuge in, in all distress. You could put it simply, it's what you hope in. It's the thing above all other things that you use to get you through each day, functionally. Not what you tell yourself you do, but the thing that you actually hope in. What is worship? He says, that now I say, upon which you set your heart and put your trust in, is properly your God. And then he tells us what idol worship is. He says, it consists not merely in erecting an image and worshipping it. See, we, like Jonah, might think, well, we don't worship idols. I don't have a golden calf. I don't have a totem pole. Um, you know, I don't have an image or a carving or a picture that I do that with. No, no. He says, but rather it's in the heart which stands gaping at something else and seeks help and consolation from creatures, saints, or devils, and neither cares for God nor looks to him for so much good as to believe that he's willing to help, neither believes that whatever good it experiences comes from God. Jonah turns really quickly from thankfulness for God saving him to pride for his turning to God. I remembered the Lord, he tells us in verse 7. He thinks God saved him because he remembered God. As if that's such a commendable action. 
Whereas the good news is so, so much better. The good news is God prepared salvation before Jonah prayed. And that even our faith isn't a good work. We've thought about this as we've looked through the book of Romans. Romans 3 verses 23 and 24. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. The moment of him praying is not that, oh, well, he's earned it in that moment. He's not saved because he remembered the Lord. God had already prepared his salvation. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, he says, which he is doing, in fairness, here in this prayer, isn't he? Give Jonah his credit. He is, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I vowed I will pay. And here's the funny thing. Jonah now catches up with the reaction of the pagan sailors. Chapter 1, verse 16, they said, uh, it says about them, they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. And you see the pattern of those same two things, making a sacrifice and committing to him. Jonah is finally in the place you think, as a prophet, he would have been from the very beginning, that he's going to worship and serve God. Salvation belongs to the Lord, he tells us. Absolutely true. And a great statement of praise. But he doesn't totally mean it yet. It's ironic that Jonah's problem with God in the next couple of chapters will become this very truth. That God saves, number one, and God saves who he wants, number two. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish. God still hasn't directly spoke to Jonah since he first commanded him to go to Nineveh, but he speaks to the fish. And it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. And I like the idea that even the great fish couldn't really stomach having Jonah too much longer. Had to get rid of him. Throws him up on the shore. And here's the interesting thing. So far, pagan sailors and a fish have been more obedient than Jonah, the prophet. Outdone by an animal. It spits him upon the dry land. And finally, Jonah's salvation here is complete as he places his feet on land, although we don't know where he ends up. And there's sometimes the painful truth, isn't it? That if God calls you to do something, you will have to do it. It may just get more difficult when you have to do it the second, the third, the fourth time round. Because now where even is he to try to navigate himself over to Nineveh? He's just made it infinitely harder than it would have been to have done the thing the first time round. Jonah has an ironic revelation, which is true, absolutely true. But he doesn't think it's true of him. And he's comically saved by this great fish. In one sense, all of this sort of section here of chapter two of the story was an unnecessary, self-inflicted diversion from God's call. And yet, sometimes we need to reach rock bottom to come to the end of ourselves and to ask God to save us. And so we learn something uh, amazing about God, that he's gracious to save the anti-hero who doesn't deserve it. And he's glorious to use any means to do it. I like every now and again to just kind of like upset your expectations of me. So alongside the picture of Arnold Schwarzenegger, to prove I'm something of a Renaissance man, I was listening to Taylor Swift uh, this week, uh, one of her new songs. 
I do. I thought it was. I got a bit emotional, actually. Truth be told, listening to it. Uh, let me share for you some of the lyrics here. I have this thing where I get older, but just never wiser. Midnights become my afternoons. When my depression works the graveyard shift, all of the people I've ghosted stand there in the room. I should not be left to my own devices. They come with prices and vices. I end up in crisis. I wake up screaming from dreaming. One day I'll watch as you're leaving because you got tired of my scheming. It's me. Hi, I'm the problem. It's me. It's an absolutely amazing piece of candid confession of the type that Jonah needed but has not yet had. He's not yet had that moment of self-understanding that he is not the hero. He is the anti-hero. And yet we need to remember Jesus' key to this story. He's told us in, in Matthew 15, something greater than Jonah is here. This story has a meaning beyond itself, especially in the saving of Jonah uh, from seeming death by the fish. Jesus says, as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Jonah sat in the fish three days because God graciously spared him from his selfish temper tantrum. Jesus lies in the tomb three days, having died a brutal death in our place, despite numerous opportunities presented to him to escape it. Jonah is in the great fish to be delivered to Nineveh because he wanted nothing to do with the sinful Ninevites. Jesus gives himself up to death on the cross, becoming sin for us, taking it upon himself, meeting its cost. Jonah faces a bit of personal discomfort brought upon by himself for his rebellion against God. Jesus, on the other hand, gives up his life so that, just as he did three days later, we too would walk away with new life, life as it was always intended the best news of all is that he did that for you, the problem child, the anti-hero, so that you don't have to worry that one day Jesus will get tired with you and up and leave. Even if people in your life have done that, even if you feel as though there's some people in your life who never believed in you in the first place, Jesus won't up and leave on you. You may well be the problem, but Jesus died to save you. Let's pray and then we'll sing a closing song together.